This is CliffCentral.com. Welcome to the Renegade Report. This is Jonathan. And Ramon is present. And if you listened to our podcast last week, we answered all your questions. This one is happening literally five minutes after that. One. <laughs> so I have no idea what to talk about this early. <laughs> all right. So yeah, well, well, we've uh, we've got a lot of uh, we've answered a lot of your questions. Uh, I don't uh, know what's going to be current in the news uh, in uh, two weeks' time, roughly. Yeah. Two two and a half weeks time, uh, when this uh, basically airs, uh, we're we're on the the border of America bombing Syria. We didn't discuss it on the last podcast. I don't want to get too much into it here, but it will be interesting to see how that plays out. Lots of people agreeing and disagreeing. Well, by and the time they hear upset. this, it could have happened and not happened. So we don't well, know. Uh, you know, of course, the nuclear holocaust that was going to happen when Donald Trump took power, then it was going to happen when Donald Trump threatened uh, Russia man. over Ukraine first, and then it was going to happen over uh, Rocket Man. Uh, none of that has happened, so I don't think it's going to be a nuclear war. But uh, who knows? If I'm wrong, um, deep apologies if I'm still alive. Um, yeah, cool. And uh, this week uh, we're going to be having a bit more of a home um, bread discussion. Yeah, indeed. So we are. To- I mean, I'm very interested in talking to other creators uh, in alter- alternative media in South Africa. So this week we have Conscious Caracol, who has. Uh, he makes YouTube videos, uh, which I watch, which are really, really good. And he has these uh, streams of consciousness where he talks to, he's spoken, I think he's spoken to like Sargon of Akkad a few times as well. So he's, he's becoming established as a, as a YouTube thinker, so to speak. So, uh, Caracol, welcome. Hey guys, no, it's great. Thank you for inviting me on. I always uh, take advantage of any platform to really help the conversation move along and uh, just share my opinions. And if anyone wants to tune in and listen, that's great. But at the same time, I don't really make it. I'm not in it for the money or any type of fame. I'm just really there to help get the conversation going in terms of important issues and important topics. You're not in for the money. My oh, goodness. How can we have this guy on the show then? Uh, well, as you know, you and I are both very much in it for the money. I know. You know we make, we make multi millionaires so far of we, this empire. We make minus 50 rand per show because the cost of petrol just to get you is about 50 bucks. Uh, but never mind. Caracol, you've been baptized by my daughter's coughing. So welcome. Uh, that's a good start. Um, so I mean, tell me a little bit about yourself. Uh, you wish to remain anonymous, which of course we will do so um what initiated the start of a youtube channel of all things and the ability to speak to some of these uh you know the skeptic community overseas you spoke to saga mm. card once or twice i believe and nick monroe who was on here a few weeks ago uh yeah just tell me your thought process around that so basically what happened was it's not some planned out thing uh back in 2016 i remember with the manchester attack where that uh um, terrorist attack at the ariana grande concert happened i was just so livid afterwards that i wanted to voice my opinions because i saw so many people post online basically the exact same rhetoric of about the crusades or oh no that ira is just as bad as isis and i couldn't believe the type of rhetoric and the type of misinformation i was seeing so i created this video uh, christian versus islamic terrorism the stats and i just tore apart all those misinformation, all those uh, uninformed opinions in terms of just giving people the raw stats and the actual sources on where I got the information. 
And then I created this Twitter account just to promote my channel because I thought, okay, maybe in the future I'm going to want to rant again or just uh, give my own thoughts on some controversial opinion. And then I started tweeting and people started following me and I realized, oh shit, wait, um, I can actually use this as a platform to get my opinions out much better than my YouTube channel. And then the 2016 election came around and I started following. Well, firstly, I was just reading corporate media. I was reading the CNNs and the MSNBCs and the Fox News of the world. And I thought for sure, no, Hillary is going to win. And then I realized just by talking to some Americans that maybe, maybe this, you can carry news on. that I'm getting from the corporate media doesn't really match up with the information that I'm getting from the ground. So I started following more and more Americans on Twitter. And then I realized, oh, wait, the, the, the image that I got or the idea that I got from corporate media is absolutely so far off the mark that I'm going to have to dig more or else my predictions are going to be completely off. So I started following thousands of Americans on the ground just to get their opinion. And then in January of 2016, I was able to predict that Donald Trump was going to win just by looking, gouging the, the information from regular Oaks talking, reporting from their homes and people that have no affiliation to any uh, corporate entities or don't have any uh, money in the game. People that are just giving their opinions and their honest takes on what's going on. And then, well, then 2017 came around and my channel has now grown a lot. I've actually started connecting with some people that do some live streams on YouTube. And I went on their uh, live streams quite a few times for just the South African perspective. They really like that over in America. And through them, through this guy, uh, Laughing Ogre, on his stream, I actually met, he had a stream with uh, Sagan Avocard and uh, Count Dankula, the Nazi Park guy. And also, who was there was another big YouTuber there as well. Um, oh, yeah, the Britisher. And we were just talking about politics in general as well. And that's how I got connected with a lot of these skeptic uh, personalities was through that show. This guy that I just met randomly and he invited me on. And then in 2018, um, I well, December 2017, I realized I want to do a bit more with my YouTube channel. I want to be a bit more professional and not just release a video every three months or four months. So I save up my money for a pretty decent mic, get that. And then I start my, basically my, well, I don't want to call it a podcast. It's more of just a live stream, stream of consciousness, where my first guest was Nick Monroe, where I just interview, well, the idea of behind the, the show is basically, I just want to get as many people from as different, as many different political perspectives as possible and just ask them for their opinion. I'm not going to debate you. I'm not going to try to humiliate you or change your mind on air. That's going to be up to the audience. I just want to hear what you have to say. I just want to hear what you have to share and what you're all about because everyone has a reason for what they believe. And I think I can pick their brains and find that out. So, so, so my first guess was, so, was yeah. Yeah. So basically you just listen to us and be like, well, I can do that on YouTube, right? So you appropriated yeah. what we are doing to be fair. <laughs> so we will demand, well, yeah. we will demand royalties uh, sometime soon. <laughs> For any new you, show. you might have played a, an unconscious role in the background. I have been listening to your podcast for almost a year. But at the same time, uh, it was pretty spontaneous, the idea of, well, the first episode with Nick Monroe, he came into contact with me first, seeing as he wanted to connect South Africans in general. 
and he wanted to just make uh, a con- almost like your same idea that you have, Roman, the idea of an intellectual dark web. He made an entire list on YouTube, uh, on Twitter, of all the notable South African accounts, and that's where I met a lot of the other South African Twitter accounts. Yeah, including us. And, I, was, yeah. I was on that list, as far as I'm aware. Yeah, I, I recommended well. you. Oh. Uh, you can thank me for that. So <laughs> kind. Very kind. Thank you, Karakal. Mm. Um, and that's the beauty of, uh, uh, okay, I'm going to go a bit of a segue here. Jordan Peterson has one of the best-selling books of the past decade, and it's not on the New York Times bestsellers list. Yeah. And that's all you need to know about the media. And I'm not saying they refused to list it or anything like that, but they got, they, you know, they, they found behind, a reason to, they hide behind these it. figures. It's published in Canada, not in the U S so we can't include it in et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. So to assume that the New York times bestseller list is the real bestseller list for books sold in the U S um, is, is false based on that. And that's the thing with media as well. Um, there are other interests at, at play, not just reporting. Um, and the other facts that play for you for, for maybe being honest or dishonest, whatever the case might be, same for us. There's different incentives. We try to be as honest as possible. I think we're doing quite a good job. I've listened to a few of your streams. Uh, you do quite a good job. Um, and what is nice is I can just name Sargon of Akkad and people who listen to both of us will be like, Oh yeah, I know that guy. He's really good and he's got a huge following. I, I say it that to anyone else. That's not in this milieu, and they have no idea who I'm talking about. Hmm. Yeah, interesting story. Uh, I tweeted this out of, uh, a while back. I was sitting at the bar a month ago, and this, well, me and my mate, and this very cute girl next to us, and we start talking to them. And this one girl asked me, and I shit you not, she asked me, so do you guys know Jordan Peterson? And me and my mate's jaws just dropped to the ground. And we're just sitting there like, who is this person? Who is this 20-something girl? That's now in a, in a Cape Town bar asking mm. us about Jordan Peterson. Yeah. And then I tweeted out and I said, well, JP needs to know that he's reaching youth down here in the southern tip of Africa. And that's absolutely incredible. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, and in fact, he was often criticized for his, uh, his audience being mostly male, and that's been one of the sort of attacks at him. You know, it's just these disenfranchised white males who are obviously racists, and that's who Jordan Peterson's audience is. But in fact, on one of the podcasts he was on, I actually heard him mentioning that his his stats, I think for – if it's his, his personal podcast, perhaps, are actually more than 50% female. Um, and, uh, because, you know, as he would say, a lot of the things he talks about have nothing to do with, with male or female. Uh, they're, they're universal concepts uh, around uh, how to approach life, how to deal with the human condition. And, uh, yeah, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of people reaching places I, I think they never thought they would reach before, uh, through alternative media. And, and, and what's really happened is that, the mainstream became, uh, you know, established. And then what happened is they, they chose certain positions, uh, in relation to different subjects and topics. And that's the positions that they push. And if you want a, if you want another view, uh, you don't get another view. And, and in some respects, they've sold the idea that they own truth. So, uh, if you go anywhere else, then that's not a truth. And in fact, uh, 
CNN would like to get rid of the term fake news, um, but it was in fact the mainstream media and specifically CNN that not only invented uh, the term fake news, but pushed it. Uh, so a lot of people forget this, but the day after Donald Trump was elected, uh, <laughs> CNN did an entire segment. Uh, um, I think it was Don Lemon or one of the, the, the senior anchors in the U.S., did an entire uh, segment uh, berating fake news, talking about how we need to, uh, you know, deal with the scourge of fake news and 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 all of this this kind of stuff. Um, and uh, as soon as uh, it doesn't uh, fit their narrative anymore, they want to uh, get rid of it. So, I think the, yeah, that's, the that's other- something I've seen with the with the corporate media as well. Is that well, I call them the legacy media rather. Is their outright aggression towards uh, alternative media? The fact that they really see us as a threat. And what I've what I've realized is that people are still very hungry for the truth. People still want to get information, for, especially in the information age. But they no longer want to get it from some guy in a suit and a tie in his 80s reading from a teleprompter. They'd rather get it from some guy in his room wearing a hoodie reading off, uh, giving his own opinion. I think an excellent example, I don't know if you're familiar with the YouTuber Six Hexenhammer. Now, he completely blows that uh, news anchor image out of the water. He does all his videos in like an 80s leather, leather jacket with no shirt under it, huh. bare-chested and with like long hair and fucking uh, sunglasses. And he gets to, he has 200,000 subscribers now, and he's reaching more people than a lot of these big corporate media uh, outlets. And it just shows people want that informal style almost. They don't want that corporate look, that idea of this guy in a suit just sitting there telling you what to think, and I have a monopoly on truth, as you mentioned. Mm. Yeah, but, but there's something extremely elitist about assuming fake news is a problem and assuming that people act on fake news. So when they say people voted for Donald Trump because of fake news, uh, you have to prove that the $100,000 given to Facebook by Russia convinced 63 million people to vote in a particular way. It is the greatest PR campaign the world's ever known. And, um, and that's what you have to prove. And to assume that people are swayed by so-called fake news is completely ridiculous. I'm swayed by fake news because I can like to call it out whenever I see it. And CNN have been, uh, you know, accused of doing that a lot of times. But to assume that people, A, the fake news actually exists in any meaningful way, or B, that people are swayed by it, to, to change their votes, um, yeah, deeply patronizing and elitist. And that's why people don't want to watch CNN, right? Well, yeah. And, and also to add to that is, is you talk about all these various uh, people on YouTube, uh, and, and, and people in sort of alternate media, so to speak. Uh, the reason I think the so-called legacy media does not like any of these people and is at war with them, essentially, is because it's a serious threat to their business. It, it really is. The reality is, is that the youth are no longer watching legacy media. Um, the, if you look at the stats, uh, we know this for the U.S., for example. If you look at the stats of the average ages of viewers of MSNBC and uh, uh, Fox and CNN and all of these uh, different uh, networks, they're all older people. So they're going to slowly, of course, die off at some point. Uh, the youth are not really engaging at that level. They're engaging on things like YouTube. Uh, they're engaging with podcasts. Uh, they're doing all those types of things. And... Uh, 
the the if you look at someone like like PewDiePie, uh, what I think up to sixty million subscribers now on YouTube. Yeah, it does. Um, you know, PewDiePie literally can release a video that says "boo" for five seconds, and he has sixty times the reach of the average um, of the average uh, podcast. Um, sorry, of the average show on CNN. So th- that's uh, that's quite incredible. Yeah, no, and I think if you look at the American election, uh, well, just American history, for example, FDR won because of radio and JFK won because of television television, and utilizing these new forms of communication. And I think you can effectively say that Trump won because of social media. And if you look at American elections, if you use the latest technology, if you can utilize the new way of talking to the masses, not just to 80-year-olds or 70-year-olds using the old media, then you can effectively mobilize so many more people than through traditional methods. And I think the next election, or maybe somewhere in the future, maybe not 2020, but somewhere 2024, 2028, uh, we'll see definitely a new revolution. The next uh, president will definitely use the next big thing, the next cutting edge of communication. And it's an interesting pattern to behold, the fact that how the, the role that communication technology plays on uh, elections and on the results of referendums. Have you, by any chance, seen that documentary on Netflix called uh, The Trump? Um, the Amer- An American Dream. An American Dream, that documentary series. Oh, no, I haven't. Yeah, well worthwhile. Well worthwhile. Mm. Very, very neutral, I must be honest. I'm yeah. actually quite impressed. And in the, li- the last episode, they, sp- they speak about him going on to Twitter for the first time, how someone opened his Twitter account. And mm. uh, the, the claim is that he knew he was running for president from 2011. And he mm. used his Twitter accounts to gauge public sentiment by tweeting the most ridiculous things. Possible against, or well, not ridiculous, but tweeting against Obama, like the dopey president mustn't bomb Iran at all costs and mustn't do that. And seeing the retweets and the reach and how people react to that tweet. And he used that in his mm. campaign later on. So his tweets were a barometer of his policies. Yeah. Yes. And I think uh, another thing that you also notice if you look, and this is something I've personally done some research on, if you look at his stances, Every time, well, if you, if you know American, the American election cycle, you'll realize that it's always Democrats four years, eight years, then it's a, it shifts it's like a pendulum. Yeah. And Trump knew this. And what he did was, if you look at his history, every time there's a, he, he changes his opinion to be the opposite of the pers- the, the party that's currently in power. For example, when, um, George Bush was in power. Donald Trump was spewing, uh, Democrat, Democrat talking points wherever he could. He was formula, he was changing himself into a Democrat. Mm. When Obama was in charge, suddenly just he shifts on the, on a dime. He's now he's a Republican. Now he's tweeting about, uh, uh, border that, that, control. That's, of course, the, da- the, the danger of him, you, you know, mm. because, uh, you don't know. You, you, yeah. you don't know where, where you're going to stand. I think, uh, Americans have mm. uh, every reason to be quite worried that after the midterms mm. later this year, if the House were to swing Democrat and if the Senate were to, although that's less likely, I think, um, but if they were, they were to suddenly have a, a, a Democrat Senate and, and House, uh, that uh, Trump might just become a Democrat because um, <laughs> that's who he would be working with. And to achieve anything, he'd have to go along with 
with those sort of um, views politically. Um, so that that I mean that is a, a problem with him, in, in, and ha- something he's been criticised for is does he have any principles, um, foundational principles? But that uh, look, as I say, that that documentary is uh, v- very good, um, and I think right. uh, yeah. it's worth worth watching and and worth our listeners also watching because it's it's quite yeah. an, an unbiased. Um, Sort of view of him from 1975 when he first enters sort of public life, yeah. all the way till till 2016. And while we're on the topic of uh, uh, worthwhile documentaries, uh, in the context of well, the relevant stories now of Syria, a uh, documentary I can highly recommend is Hypernormalization. I don't know if you've seen it. No. Uh, it talks about basically the the overthrow of Gaddafi in Libya, and it's absolutely engrossing, but also yeah. incredibly disturbing at the same time when you look at the the exact same notes being hit with the build-up for the Syria, basically the Syria war, if you can put it that way. Yeah. It's, it seems like the Americans are falling for the exact same type of rhetoric and the exact same type of propaganda that they did leading up to the Iraq war and to uh, dethroning Gaddafi, basically. Yeah. We'll certainly take a look. Um, I want to bring in a bit more a bit more local, Caracol. So uh, locally we got SABC, which is utter shit. Uh, we've got ENCA, which is boring. And then we've got Prime Media, which is owned by socialists. So um, there's a great, you know, diverse range of, of options locally, uh, thank God, for that. And then when they want to appeal to the youth, they hire so, uh, a failed academic like Eusebius MacKaiser uh, to do that. Because um, when your listeners are, are 80% uh, white middle class, the best way to get them to listen is uh, get a, a presenter to say how um, how privileged and racist they all are. It's great economics. Nevertheless, uh, locally, what issues do you think is not being discussed in an open way that you are trying to discuss? Well, uh, excellent question. I would say issues that need more more attention and more almost like a need to be approached from a more objective and nonpartisan uh, perspective is the idea, for example, inequality and land land distribution and asset and capital distribution. I think the immense inequality we see in South Africa is unsustainable and we're going to have to find a solution. But at the same time, we can't just let the conversation devolve into populist rhetoric and racialized rhetoric every time. Because in South Africa, any South African worth his salt will know that the inequality divide in South Africa is not simply black versus white. There's a growing uh, uh, income and wealth divide within, for example, black cultures as well. And when you look at the South African context, if we are going to solve this problem, we're going to need a level-headed conversation, a conversation that doesn't just devolve into racialist, almost like a racialist cesspool of just reactionary comments, and rather look at it level-headed, objectively, and nonpartisanly. And that gets me to basically my, my utmost and big support for freedom of speech, because I think in South Africa, the biggest threat to free speech isn't the government silencing us, but rather the masses of people actively silencing themselves. And if you live in an environment where people are afraid to voice their opinions or people are afraid to even speak their mind because of the, the possible repercussions or even jail sentences, God forbid, then you create a, a society that is not conducive or even very welcome to any type of debate or discussion. I think it was my favorite Afrikaans uh, philosopher and uh, South African intellectual is M.P.F. van Beek Lowe. And he said that 
just as important as blood circulation is to the body, such is the importance of the circulation of ideas for a society. And the circulation of ideas is not simply speaking your mind, but also attentively listening to what your opponent has to say. If you, if it's, you only take one side of the coin, if I, you only preach that you want freedom of speech, that so you can voice your opinion, but you don't allow your opponent the exact same privilege, then there, nothing will happen. There's no dialogue. I think it was either Socrates or Plato that said, without difference, there's no dialogue. So if it's just one side, uh, basically um, taking advantage or exploiting freedom of speech, but they don't allow any other opposing viewpoints, then it's pretty much redundant. Then freedom of speech isn't, then speech in South Africa really isn't free. Mm. Uh, yeah, look, I, w- I would agree with that. I just, I want to push back a little bit against this idea that, uh, you know, free speech has always been spoken about in terms of what the government does. Uh, for example, you don't necessarily have free speech for argument's sake in a company. So if you go to work uh, and you start talking, saying horrible things about your boss, they, in theory, can fire you for that uh, because they're a private company and you don't really have that kind of freedom of speech. Um, and it's always been uh, more about the, what the government can infringe. And lately, a lot of uh, commentators have pushed this idea that, well, now it's not so much the government we need to worry about anymore. It's all of us, which is exactly what you were saying. Um, and I, I don't disagree with you on that, but I think we need to be careful to absolve the government of responsibility here. Uh, if you take uh, – I'm going to use American and South African examples. If you take America, for example, you've got someone like Barack Obama as the president of the United States at the time standing up and saying – Racism is in our DNA. Now, that is a fundamentally incorrect statement, um, firstly because there's no evidence that uh, racism is in our DNA, scientifically speaking. But it's also a very unhelpful statement because it's a statement that says essentially there's nothing we can do about racism because even if you aren't racist, don't want to be racist, you're still a racist. Okay, it's a it's 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 a essentially a neo-Marxist way uh, of uh, re-establishing you know, all whiteness is racism, blackness uh, is oppressed, etc, etc. So, and then what happens is the public uh, um, uh, discussion is influenced by that. And that's, that's a government influence of a public discussion. In South Africa, we have the government prosecuting someone for speech the courts then find that person guilty of some speech or we have uh, that's the Momberg case for example but we have the Human Rights Commission or the Equality Court uh, giving fines for people saying things they don't like um, and that is a government organization the the fact that people then uh, go on Twitter and say what can be said what can't be said and then feel chilled well, the, the truth is, is that that's all coming originally from a government uh, point of view, which says we will we will punish the worst of the speech. And then people who like that idea of punishing speech then push it as their general narrative. And then you and I get chilled by those individuals. But I think we need to be careful to understand that the government still has a role to play here. And if we had a government that was standing up and going, Speech is uh, important. Speech needs to be free no matter what. You need to be able to hear stuff you don't like. If you had Jacob Rees-Mogg as as our president, for example, saying those things, I don't believe you would have such bold, brash social justice warriors actually limiting people's speech on social media. Mm, No, fair point. I uh, uh, understand exactly where you're coming from. 
And I think uh, this also leads me, I can segue this into another point that I wanted to bring up, the fact that there's been a visible, at least for me, a visible increase in Afrikaner and white accounts on Twitter just speaking their mind. And I think it's kind of a, a phenomenon that's being fueled by, to use a metaphor, the, the water getting a bit hotter and the frog getting a bit uncomfortable. For example, I have two or three mates of mine that have now joined Twitter out of nowhere just because they thought they were feeling that they're not being represented in the media and they feel that they want to give their opinion. They want people to know their side of the story and their perspective. And what's also happening and on the topic of censorship, for example, there's this motion that we need to ban the old South African flag. Now, my my opinion on that is I don't think the, the old South African flag really has a place at, for example, at public events or in, at sport events. But at the same time, you can't ban people from using a piece of cloth. Or basically, if you have the old South African flag gathering dust in your house and the police raid your home and they find it, you, I don't think you should be sent to jail. But at the same time, an interesting thing that I've noticed, as soon as that rhetoric started about banning the old South African flag, the amount of Twitter accounts using the old South African flag as their profile picture increased exponentially. It's almost the Barbara Streisand effect. Well, not only that, is uh, we know this. When you ban things, uh, you actually amplify them. You don't. Uh, you you don't uh, get rid of them. We, we, it's 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 proven again and again and again. And and the left always wants to ban things, assuming that if I can't see them, they don't exist anymore. Hmm. I always say uh, sunlight is the best disinfectant. If someone is wrong, I want to give them a bullhorn so other people can hear they're wrong as well for the people in the back. Yeah, well, that's the point of our show to be, oh, and yours as well, of course. Um, hmm. As a as an Afrikaner in South Africa, I mean, if I was an Afrikaner, I would, I think, I'd be a bit pissed. Uh, there's a lot of anti-Afrikaner rhetoric, you know, I mean, anti-white, yeah, anti-white generally, but I think there's a special place for the Afrikaner and, and it's, it's done by, you know, the Stellenbosch, you know, it's, it's called the Stellenbosch Mafia, white monopoly capital. Mm. We know they're not talking about liberal white people living in four ways. They're talking about no. old vested interests, so to speak. Mm. Um, what is your view on, how do you feel about, obviously, how do you feel about that? And, uh, um, oh, yeah, so and, for and, transparent, yeah. Sorry, lost, lost, continue. yeah, sorry, it's, it's bad to ask two questions, but I will. Um, and as Afrikaner, what, I mean, what essentially do you want from this country? Okay, so for transparency's sake, to show my bias, uh, I am a proud Afrikaner. I'm, a, I'm proud Burin, I'm proud Afrikaans. But at the same time, like I told you, I don't want to create, I'm not here to create a Boer ethno state. I just want the idea to be, to be conveyed to the people that Afrikaners also are part of South Africa. We've been here for hundreds of years. Me, for example, my family's been here since 1688. I'm a ninth generation South African. That's, and that, I mean, that's longer than, look, than, that's, sorry, that's a lot longer than other, other tribes. <laughs> If you look at if you look at Europe, uh, there's this famous National Geographic uh, cover which said the new Europeans with like this uh, Middle Eastern family on the on the front, and I made that point a few months ago. That so you're saying that me, a ninth generation Afrikaner whose family's been here for since 1688, can't call myself African or even feel at home in Africa, but a first generation refugee or first generation immigrant to Europe can call themselves European. And I think that's a very important point to to really put the, the liberals basically in checkmate 
is the fact that they want, they always advocate for this, no, all these immigrants to America and all these immigrants to, to Australia and Europe need to be accepted and called uh, Australian, European, American. But as soon as you flip that coin around, you ask, but can uh, white South Africans feel at home in South Africa? Can they feel that they also are a part of South Africa and call themselves African? Then they just freeze and they start, you see almost like the, the error message appear in their eyes. Because <laughs> then they don't have an answer. They say, no, 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 that's different. That's different. I'm like, no, it's, it's not different. So white South Africans have been here for hundreds of years. We also have a right to call ourselves South African and be part of this. And that's the interesting thing that I saw with the, the whole Australia thing was we had this rhetoric in South Africa. Is, no, uh, white South Africans aren't, uh, aren't welcome here. They need to go back to Europe or they need to fuck off. And then Australia was like, okay, we'll take them. And then the ANC was, oh, no, you can't say that. That's racist. So what do you want? Do you want South Af white South Africans to be trapped here so you can just take vengeance on them and just keep uh, abusing them and using them as a scapegoat? Or do you want them to fuck off? You need to take a stance and you need to be principled. Uh, wow. I think a good example is the, the Enghia Church, uh, to make a comparison. For example, the Enghia Church's um, stance on, I think, gay pastors and gay marriage. Uh, a few years ago, they said, no, it's okay. Uh, uh, they first made the stance like, no, we're going to stick to the idea that you can't be gay and, and be a pastor and we're not going to allow gay marriage. And then they, or oh, we're going to be, it's going to be frowned upon. And then they switched gears and they said, okay, no, no, it's going to be fine from now on. You can be gay and a pastor and you can, gay marriage is not going to be shamed or frowned upon. And then they got pushback and then they uh, flip flopped again. And I see a lot of the same with the DA as well. The DA also flip-flops a whole lot in terms of not really being principled. And that's why I can't really say that I'm going to – I can't say for sure whether I'm going to vote for the DA or not next, next year because I can't vote for a party that doesn't stick to its principles. It doesn't tell me, okay, this is what we stand for and we are going to defend our principles because they seem to flip-flop only they change their opinion with the tides. And a good a good example I sent you a, a example of um, what's his name uh, Trevor Noah as well. I remember a few years back in one of his uh, comedy skits, he he tried to norm well not normalize but take out the take away the power of the K word in South Africa. And now mm -hmm. with the Vicky Momberg uh, incident, now you look at his Daily Show take on it, and he's completely made a U turn less than five years later. Now he's completely in favor of jailing people for using speech. And it, it's just interesting to me to see the, the, how people change their stances with the tides. And to get to your second question, uh, in terms of what do I want as a Afrikaner in South Africa? It's very simple. I, I'm not, I don't really have a large demands. I just want, firstly, I want to be viewed as a South African. I don't want to be viewed as a European settler, uh, or as Book of Blissikar says in one of his songs, a tourist in my country of birth. I don't want to be viewed just as a tourist in my home country. This is my home. This has been my home for as long as since I was born. And it's been my family's home for over 300 years. And I think it's pretty unfair to say just because I have white skin that I have to go back to Europe. I've been to Europe. I don't feel at home in Europe. Europe is not my home. I don't like the Europeans. The Europeans are, quite frankly, a bit uh, cold and metallic. I don't, and when I got back to South Africa, I remember getting to the airport and there's this uh, South African woman sitting there and she's like, welcome to South Africa. And I'm just, yes, I'm home. This is where I belong. And I just felt instantly, as soon as I set foot back on African soil, I just felt at home again. 
And that's why I can't leave. I'm not going to just uh, run away to Australia. That's kind of the, the white South African starter kits like pluckies, fialies or uh, shorts, uh, khaki shirt. And, oh, I'm moving to Australia next year. And <laughs> I don't think I'm, I'm not going to just run away. My ancestors have been here long enough and have given their blood, sweat and tears. So I can enjoy one of the best countries in the world. And I just want to be part of it. And that's the, the idea that I get from most Afrikaners as well is that, they're not, they don't want to create a Buddhist state. They don't want to go back to apartheid. They just want to feel like they are also welcome in the country of their birth. They don't want to be treated like tourists or invaders or settlers. They want to be treated with the same respect as any other South African culture. And they want to be seen as part of this country and part of this country's future going forward. Yeah, I mean, speaking okay, a few things, I mean, the Buddhist state did exist for 40 years and uh, mm-hmm. it, it didn't work out so well the last time around. And number two, I was born in Europe. And um, first of all, we're not all cold. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm quite hot. <laughs> and uh, But I, I feel the same. I go to Europe, I meet my family there. And it's just not me. It's it's a tiny little place with uh, you know funny bread and even funnier accents. Um, and I think you made a good case for everyone. You know, being as an African is, is, it's not just a question of a passport, I suspect. It, it's a question of, mm. of being integrated into the culture. And, and for anyone to make the case that you're not really South African because you're a wife, mm. even though you've been here longer than like three, that's, that's, you've been here longer than America's been around. Yeah. As existed <laughs> as a state. White people have been in South Africa longer than the existence of the USA. Um, I mean, I mean, just for perspective, it's ridiculous to say you're not really. Yeah, I mean, the the Zulu Kingdom was founded, in, I think, in 1815. Them as a culture, and the interesting thing also is, well, and and to go a bit more onto a, a bit more morbid point, but a bit more, but it's in, it's it's important is the fact that South Africa is our home. South Africa is the home of Afrikaners as well. I mean. They did everything in their power to distance themselves from being European. They called themselves Afrikaners with Africa in their name. They speak a language called Afrikaans. They are rooted in this country's history and hopefully this country's future. And at the same time, I always tell people, you can kick me out of a bar. You can kick me out of a, a someone else's home, but you can't kick me out of my own home. I will resist. If, if, I'm, if you try to kick me out of my own home, then I'm not going to just sit down and let you abuse me. I'm going to resist and actually put up a fight. And that's what's going to happen in South Africa. If you try to force people out of a place where all these farmers that have lived on these farms for their entire lives, their family has farmed on that ground, their their family members are buried on that farm. If you try to tell them that we're going to take this away from you, they're not going to just go down and just leave. You're going to get immense resistance and you're going to it's going to be hyper emotional these people are almost to be to put it metaphorically they are plowed into that land they are rooted there you can't just chase them away and tell them that you're going to have to leave this farm where your family has been farming for hundreds of years and where your family members are buried yeah it's a very good point and 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 well made just uh, to go back a little bit into what you've said. So I think that uh, those are, as I say, I, I agree with most of that. And I, I think, uh, you know, all of that is if you are reasonable about things, I think, you know, there's a lot of discussion to be had about land in this country. 
which isn't happening, uh, frankly, because the so-called legacy media uh, don't want to have that discussion. They, for example, they, they don't want to have a discussion whereby you go, well, we've been on this land since 1700. Uh, they don't want to have that discussion um, because if that discussion leads to, well, where did, who did you steal the land from? And you're like, well, nobody. There was no one here. Um, that's a very inconvenient, um, fact. I mean, there, there are more inconvenient facts around, uh, actual, um, title deeds that were exchanged or, or trades that were done between uh, groups and tribes. Uh, you know, th- these are the discussions that aren't happening, but uh, you made a point about, you know, that whole thing that happened with the Australians and, and, we had a we had a while where Julius Malema nicely exposed himself for the fascist and racist that he is, and and um, one good thing that we've got out of 2018 so far is that even the mainstream media now openly will refer to Julius as having at least fascist tendencies, if not being an outright fascist, and uh, people in the mainstream are happy to call Julius a racist because that's what he is. Um, and in 2017, we hadn't reached that point. Uh, you know, our podcast would have made that comment. Uh, other people might have made that comment, but um, people just weren't willing to say it about Julius either because they didn't feel what he had said or done yet had exposed him enough as being that uh, or because they just were trying to still push his narrative. Uh, I think he overplayed his hand this year. Uh, and when he went on a number of hateful diatribes uh, in uh, February, March, uh, and made it very clear that it's not only white people he hates, it's Indians, it's Chinese, it's basically anyone foreign uh, or who he views as foreign. Uh, and I think that it's now quite clear what that he is. But when the Australians come across you know julius will say they must leave uh his one comment they must leave the keys to their houses and their tractors uh when they go to australia so there's the comment of i want you to leave and go to australia then the australians come and say all right well we'll think about actually taking you and then of course the anc responds and you can't do that and that's racist um the 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 and you mentioned about vengeance and i actually think that there's a lot to be said about this so i do believe the uh, the data we have in that most South Africans just want to be left alone. Most South Africans want to live peacefully with each other. And most South Africans are not uh, bigoted towards each, towards each other. Each other. Uh, that said, uh, I do think that there is a minority, but it is a very loud minority with a lot of resource uh, who are saying those types of things and who do want vengeance. I do think that's what they want. I think the last thing they want is for specifically with regards to the Afrikaans and specifically the Boers. I think they do want vengeance. I don't think they want even land. Um, I think the only reason they might want land, some of these people, people like Julius and people who follow him vociferously, the type of people who uh, engage with me on Twitter and only know how to use expletives, do not have any argument to make. I think these people either want your land, not because they want the land, they want you to suffer and they want to see your suffering. Um, they threaten violence because they want to be violent. And this is, of course, comes down to the farm murder debate and the, and the motivation around this. And of course, I suppose it would lead into why are, you know, 
a lot of uh, farm murders and uh, farm attacks associated with such a high level of uh, brut- brutality and, and, and in cases torture. Why does that, why does that happen if you're just coming to rob the farmhouse? Um, and I, I think that that may very well all feed into that. W- what's your view? Well, my view is definitely I'm on the same page as you there. I think a lot of this brutality we see with the, with the farm murders is definitely motivated by the dehumanizing of whites in South Africa. I mean, if you preach to millions of people that white people just came here and stole your land and genocided you and are basically the devil incarnate, you're going to want to take revenge. You're going to want to get back at them because these are monsters, uh, according to what the the media and a lot of politicians are telling you. And that's the thing that pisses me off is the, the the, the evident dehumanization that's happening in South Africa. Now, I'm not a big uh, proponent or exposer of the idea that there's a white genocide going on. But at the same yeah. time, this is pretty much a, a characteristic of a genocide is the idea of dehumanizing a minority in your country. And I think that's definitely something that adds to the fact that we see this horrible torture happening in my, many of these uh, farm murders where nothing is even taken. I mean, if you, if you want to go with the, the idea that it's only regular crime, then you can't really, uh, you put into a corner when you realize that the majority of these farm murders, they come in, they torture the, the farmer and his wife and his children, and they don't take anything. They just fuck off. And it's like, it's, for example, a, a hijacking where the hijacker goes, pulls you out of your car, beats the shit out of you, tortures you with his knife, and then he walks off without taking the car. I mean, you can't really frame this as regular crime. This, this, many of these cases are hate crimes. Many of these cases are definitely racially motivated. And I think there's definitely a strong connection with the rhetoric that we see in the media, the the bias rhetoric, where it's okay to basically say that white people are thieves, white people are the devil, white people are just here to to exploit you. Every morning a white person wakes up and they think, hmm, how can I keep the black man down today? But you also see that on the right, or in, in the, the more extreme uh, white political sphere. You see that the, the other side of the coin where they say, no, black people wake up every morning thinking, how can they murder the whites today? So it's a, it's a phenomenon that you're seeing across the world where the two radical sides, left and right, cannibalize the center. The, for example, the radical left goes to the center and they say, look at all these Nazis, look at all these white supremacists on the right, come to our radical side, we'll keep you safe. And then the radical right goes to the center, do, does exactly the same. Look at all these communists. Look at all these Antifa on the other side. Come to our radical side. We'll keep you safe. And yeah. that's what happened in, in Weimar, Germany, where the radicals just cannibalized the center. And then you get the situation where 10, a 10% uh, party can actually control the entire nation. And I think we're, we're walking a very fine line in terms of populism and radical populism in this country. We're walking a fine line where you get the, you, you, Expose radical racist uh, rhetoric as we see from Alema, and then you get a reaction. You're not going to get a, a calm reaction if you tell the entire race that they're monsters and that they we're not going to slaughter whites yet. I mean, you're going to get people pretty uncomfortable, and then you're going to get the situation that I mentioned earlier, mm. where you get this increase in white South Africans on Twitter just voicing their opinion, increasing the radicalness of their views. Because as a reaction to the the constant barrage they get from the media and politicians, then I don't think we should we should really allow people to 
get away with the, the double standards that we're seeing in the South African media of demonizing an entire group of people. Uh, and then there's also the idea that I'm pretty sure you're very familiar with the idea that uh, blacks can't be racist because uh, uh, prejudice and power, or whatever. But then if you look at the, the history of the word racism, it actually, the first use was uh, in Nazi Germany about how the, the Nazis treated the Jews. They also viewed the Jews as a privileged minority that were in control of the, the German economy and the German politics. And if, and that's where the, the word racism came from first was the, was the treatment of the Nazis in the media and in their rhetoric of the Jews as a privileged, powerful minority that are controlling the majority. So if you want to make that point with that racism is only prejudice and power, then you have to look at the history of the word where it actually historic demonstrates that it's historically false. Yeah. I, I, I generally don't even engage with that, uh, falsity because I, I find it to be utter nonsense and it's a it's it's a redefinition of words and and if we're going to start doing that well then we, we we've lost civilization in my opinion but um so i'm not even i don't generally engage with that i, I do want to just make a point which is and i think what you're talking about is the left uh, the far left cannibalizing center the far right cannibalizing center and the problem is is when there's no sort of and I'm not a big fan of balance, but it is the best way to describe this. So you can have, for example, you don't have to have a white genocide, which is easily going to be disprovable. There's a big Facebook group at the moment, an anti, there's no such thing as white genocide or something is the, is the group, right? And it's picked up a lot of, uh, followers, um, from all races, um, because the problem, the problem is, is, you can't say you've got a white genocide in a country where you've got a number of white people, millions, in fact, who live very decent lives. Um, so that's the one side. Uh, but that isn't doesn't take away from the fact that you do have clearly a problem of uh, farmers being targeted. There, there's, there's no doubt about that. The evidence, the statistics, the data is there. Um, and so – the, the conversation that's not being had is the one in the middle or the balance conversation, which is that two things can be true. There's no white genocide. There is a targeting of, of white farmers. Uh, and, and, and those things are, are both correct statements in my, in my view. Mm. Yeah. It, it also relates to, you can look at the other side of the coin as well. For example, racism is a problem, but at the same, for example, let's take America. Racism in America is definitely a problem, but at the same time, there's not some systemic conspiracy against black people in America that's keeping them down and like all the white people get together in a meeting every month just to decide how we're going to keep the black man down this year. It's, it's the exact same type of rhetoric, the exact same type of exaggeration and sensationalism that the radical sides use to, like you said, to cannibalize the center. And that is. A great point you're making, because I do think, and this was never our intention, Jonathan, I don't think it's yours either, Caracol, by just speaking and having a platform, people use the information we share as a basis for believing what they believe, if that makes sense. So, mm. I mean, I think to the, the the far left and the far right, we are all, you know, we are all... um Sellouts, or I don't know what uh, what what the far right cucks or normies, whatever, whatever, they, whatever <laughs> term they want to use. Uh, but we represent views of millions of people in this country, whether they know it or not, uh, just based on the data that we see. And it's quite gratifying sometimes where 
someone sent you an email and they say, you know, I had these same ideas for 10 years. I was called a liberal in 2000 and uh, I'm now a supposedly right wing in 2018, but I've always held the same beliefs. And they use our podcast and perhaps your live streams and perhaps someone else's content to show that other people believe what I believe and they are talking about it openly and, you know, they don't get, well, okay, they get chastised perhaps, but they don't get imprisoned, they don't get killed. It's safe to speak about what you really believe. Mm. And that's quite gratifying in a way. Yeah, that's what I'm saying is the the idea of, uh, wait, I uh, lost my train of thought. Uh, the idea of, well, for example, if you if you take someone on the radical left and they listen to this podcast, I know you're also bothered by this fact that they're probably going to uh, label us as alt-right or uh, alt-right uh, um gatekeepers yeah we're not bothered um, at all <laughs> couldn't give a shit because here's a here's the thing right it's 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 if you if you know what you are and you've made it very clear what you are as well i mean that's that's the great thing about this podcast which is before the podcast i knew i wasn't a racist for example and so when someone said oh you're a racist on twitter accuse me of that it didn't really bother me it's like what of a duck's back because it's like well i'm not mm. so i don't really care if if, if you're subjective view is that um mm. that's just untrue um the great thing about this podcast is that ramon and i get to put down an hour of speech <laughs> every week in mm. which we actively prove that over and over again so it's fine come at us with whatever you like where are our alt-right beliefs where are our racist beliefs where have we been bigoted um we we get an hour every week to prove that we're none of these things so to, I know you were using it as just a turn of phrase, but not, I'm not bothered in the least. Mm, mm. And that's the thing, is that I had this uh, conversation the other day with a guy. I had an article that were, was quoting all Julius Malema's most racist and radical quotes. And he told me, uh, no, I'm not going to read. Well, firstly, he said, where's your proof that he's made any racist comments? And I said, well, you should read the article. Uh, it kind of helps to read the articles that I share. And then as I, he says, no, I'm not going to read some racist article. And then I said, well, so direct quotes are now racist. <laughs> yeah. So, and uh, Julius does seem to be backpedaling as well at the moment. Mm. Yeah, this morning on News24, they reported that uh, Julius Malema said that, no, there won't be any bloodshed with the land expropriation. White people are as natural to South Africa as the mountains and the trees. Now, my personal theory is that someone whispered in his ear and told him, hey, uh, you're going to have to turn it down. You're making some people and some big bankers and some big corporate uh, entities a bit nervous with your rhetoric. You're going to have to turn it down or we're not going to support you anymore. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's, uh, that probably is true. And I think uh, there's some polling data probably which which uh, which may tell him that he's not doing very well in, in the polls. Uh, we don't, we don't know that for sure, but I, I know, for example, the DA constantly polls, like, I mean, daily. Mm. Uh, and then that's why you see the DA, uh, rudderless, like you described them. One of the reasons is that they are constantly polling at a national, uh, level and they watch, uh, what's polling well and then they just follow the polls. Like they, 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 and, and at times they abandon their principle just to chase the poll. Uh, yes, exactly. and that's, so that's why the, from the outsider's view, the DA will appear to be completely without focus. And last week they were, you know, for one thing and this week they're against it. 
Uh, and that's uh, that probably what's going on with Julius. I think uh, he's exposed himself to be exactly who and what he is. Uh, mm. Only thing I think we can add to it is that he's hungry for power. The only thing he's ever wanted is the presidency. Uh, and if he ever were to get his hands on it, you can uh, he, he he's either leaving there in a in a coffin or never. Yeah. Like that's that's those are your options. Yeah, and uh, on that point, I'd I'd like to hear your opinion on this. The the idea that when we were talking about the endorsement of radical views by the the mainstream in South Africa. For example, when Cyril Ramaphosa said that he wants to, uh, Julius Malema has always been an ANC member in his heart and that he would love to have Julius Malema back in the fold. What are your thoughts on that idea where the, the ANC, I know exactly why he's saying it, but I want to hear your yeah. thoughts on what, what are your thoughts on that message, that idea that this radical person, this radical racial populist and racist is welcome in the ANC and what message does that send to the average South African? Uh, yeah, no, my daughter's on as well, so I'm just hearing what she's saying. Um, yeah, well, Karakal, I think uh, Malema's views are shared by quite a wide uh, percentage of the ANC, at least with the structures of the ANC. I'm not sure about the voters, so to speak. Um, and I, th- I see it as an endorsement. I'm sorry. If Jonathan says, tomorrow, kill the Jews, and I say, yeah, let's do a podcast together, even though I disagree with killing the Jews... Um, I'm still endorsing him because I know exactly what his views are. And then I still say, I still invite him in to my inner sanctum. So obviously, obviously there's political reasons for doing so, but I think Malema's views are, are an element of the ANC rhetoric for the past 25 years, if I'm honest. Yeah. Uh, just to add to that, um, Ruan's going to run out with, with his daughter. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I just, um, also, also think you need to remember the, the, what the ANC is. So, uh, you know, like the DA would like to describe itself as Tony Leon mentioned as a broad church recently, uh, you know, and they'll have, they'll, they'll have people like myself as classical liberals. They might, may even have a couple of libertarians voting for them. Um, right up to, you know, pretty, pretty sort of center leftists, even, you know, social Democrats, those types of people, statists, um, who, who will vote for them based on competency or, or some, some view like that. Um, the ANC is a left-wing organization. Uh, they are, they have deep communist roots, uh, or not roots, so to speak, but they adopted communism, uh, halfway through their lifespan. Uh, they, uh, very much have made friends with people who have those views around the world. Uh, a reminder that if, you know, if, if Syria descends into a world war and everyone has to pick a side, you know, once upon a time, South Africa was on the side of the allies. Uh, if we were to fight in a war tomorrow of, of, you know, world war, um, tomorrow, um, we would be on the side of wherever Iran was. Okay, Iran mm. and China, and Venezuela, um, and you know th- those are the countries we diplomatically side with, and that is based on the ideology of the ANC. So, I think Julius Malema just represents a far left, uh, the far left inside the ANC. Uh, I think that uh, that's who he is as a person. But when he left the party, he took a lot of the far left ideas, the far left principles, and some of the far left voters. And the ANC trying to reach out to Julius is just them trying to get all of those people back into the fold. And Ramon's 100% right. Uh, if you listen to what goes on at an ANC conference, 
Their ideas range from stuff that is center-left, where you'll have someone like Cyril Ramaphosa who will sort of push those ideas more, um, you know, towards more of a capitalistic view. Um, and then you will have guys like Zwinan Zimavavi. Um, you will have guys like um, uh, Rob Davies. You will have guys like Bladen Zimandi who, who will push very, very far left opinions and views and not necessarily hateful in their, in their, <laughs> in their views. So I, I don't know that Rob Davies, for example, has ever said anything hateful. But if you, in, if you enacted Rob Davies' view of South Africa tomorrow, there's no way you get to it without extreme violence and suffering. Mm. And that's the thing about the ANC is they've always been famous for using other subgroups in to really get their message out and to test the waters. For example, the ANC Youth League. I view it as they use the ANC Youth League to kind of voice their more radical views just to gauge the, the public's reaction. Yep. If they get a positive reaction, then they'll endorse it. But if they get a too negative reaction, then they'll just condemn it's- it. It's also, that's what they used, yeah. it's also the Overton window, right? So Julius mm-hmm. Malema goes out and he says, or it doesn't matter who it is, right? Someone, the left does this all the time. So they go on the far left and they go and they say things like, we want to, let's use America's gun control as an example, right? The far, far left will go, we need to take away the second amendment and take away people's guns. We need to ban guns. That's the mm. far, far left view. And, People go, that's insane. That's crazy. Okay. And everyone reacts to that for a couple of weeks. And then what happens is they go, you know what? Don't worry. We're not going to take away your guns. We just want to register all your guns, know where they, where they, where they're kept at all times. And, uh, we just want to restrict a couple of the people who can get them. Right. And suddenly everyone goes, Oh, that doesn't seem so bad. That, that, that's not too, that's not too too terrible. It's like when you stick your toe in the in your in your newly run bath the first time, and you're like, sure, that that that's too hot. And then once your toe's been in the bath, you stick it in the second time, and it doesn't feel as hot. It's exactly that. They do it all the time, and this is why you have to be principled because you have to stick to um, what your core beliefs are, and you have to keep coming back to them. Otherwise, you're going to yeah. keep moving, and the the entire world is going to just drag you with it. Yeah, it relates to that what Jordan Peterson says, where he says that things get incredibly terrible one little step at a time. For example, the government will encroach a bit on your rights, and then you start to protest, and you start making noise, then they'll stop, and they'll wait. And then they'll encroach a bit more, and then you'll start making noise, and you'll protest, and then they'll stop, and they'll wait. And then in a few years, you're miles and miles from where you were, and you mm, didn't even take absolutely. a single step. Look at, the, look at mining rights in South Africa. You know, the, the ANC since the nineties has been, has been wanting to infringe on mining rights, basically. Um, and then, and they do it quite skillfully. And, and then, and then suggest. it's taken them 25 years, but we're at the point where they're going to char- pass a mining charter, uh, which, which, uh, which is, is but the mining charter is the least of it. Um, I know, but the point no, is, no, is no, we've no. moved. Listen to my, listen to my point. Yeah. So section 25 talks about expropriation without compensation. Excuse me. So the ANC knows very well if they expropriate, they need to compensate. However, if miraculously they become custodians of mining rights, there's no expropriation, so there's no need to pay for compensation. And the constitutional court agreed with that. And I, I believe that's what they want to do with farmland at the end of the day. So they're not going to take my house. My house is going to be worth nothing uh, once they they start expropriating or becoming the cost, you know the custodian of the land, but that's what they are. They they are a central planning, very authoritative 
government that is hell-bent on the National Democratic Revolution. And people mock that term and people do all sorts of things when they say it. But I really believe them when they say the revolution is still happening. And the reason why we're not, we haven't, you know, the reason why inequality exists still and poor black people exist and there's no land for black people, etc. It's because the whites or international community or the economy or, 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 it's never their own policies. Um, and, and, they are deeply suspicious of capitalists, except for their own, and they're deeply suspicious of business, except for the big ones that bribe them, you know, to go on their boards. So, funny enough, I think the revolution has been postponed by big business who crafted them and funded them to get through, uh, you know, these these uh, legislation for BE and all that shit. That just increases the power of corporations in the country. So thankfully they're greedy and incompetent. Otherwise we would have been in Venezuela by now very easily. Mm. And it's also that people, what people don't realize is the, the EFF and many members within uh, the ANC also openly endorse figures like Mao or Hugo Chavez or all these socialists that basically went through radical economic reform and radical agrarian reform. And then at the same time, then people say, no, we're not going to go the, the same way. Uh, this time it'll work. We're different. And that's kind of the the same rhetoric you see throughout history. Right. Is, uh, yeah. Strong men, yeah. Strong men create good times. Good times create weak men, and weak men create bad times. Right. And, uh, and yeah. it's, it's the same Jordan Peterson principle once again, where uh, to assume that it will go better because you're in charge is like the, just the height of arrogance. <laughs> really yeah, but don't you think that's uh, every coming generation has that view? Maybe censorship will work this time because we're better than our parents. We know better. Yeah, but I don't understand it. I have no. No aspirations to control what people do. It's it's the strangest form of of sociopathy to me to assume that I know what's best for people. It's the Frederick Hayek problem, the knowledge problem, over and over again, and people just never learn. And I'm afraid sooner or later the voters will have to suffer for it. So I'm actually glad for the VAT, you know, increase because it's about time the poor pay their fair share of the taxes in this country. Um, and that's what, and that's what it will have to take. It will take a drastic reduction in living standards to remove the ANC. That's all it takes. It's not ideology. It's not policy. It's nothing. It's a drastic reduction well, in living standards. There's two sides to that, obviously. So, I mean, it's either a drastic reduction in living standards, uh, or it's, it's, it's an inability uh, it's everyone drops to the same sort of level. Uh, so it is, it, it's the same thing, but, but it's, it's that argument around building the black, this way to save South Africa is to build the black middle class, right? Cause as you've mentioned before, skin in the game. So, uh, the minute you have skin in the game, you've got something to lose. And, uh, and, and it's, if people have something to lose, they might think a bit harder about who they support, what they're voting for, yeah, etc. Remember, the support is mostly rural poor areas. Uh, so those people, it takes, the upsides are very high. You get a new road, geez, life changes immediately mm-hmm. for them. Uh, mm. So the upsides have always been really high on that side by providing the most minuscule amount of service possible at any given stage. So those people's lifestyles need to, need to be drastically reduced. Yeah, that's what a lot of people don't understand is they they don't really understand where all the support for the EFF and the ANC comes from. But if the only thing you need to do to really understand where their base really is, is you have to drive through the trans sky and you just see houses and houses and houses as far as you can see, just people living in rural areas. And these people are not, if you live in poverty, you're not 
you don't have your priorities are different. You don't read books or the newspapers. You'd rather buy food or just think about day to day. You're not trying to get informed because that's taking away time you can rather spend on just surviving. Yeah. So I think the, the biggest thing for South Africa would be, and it's a pretty big cliche, but it's definitely needed, is better information, better informed electorate almost. Because I'm not a big fan of democracy, but at the same time, if we're going to get be stuck in this uh, democratic system, we need to have uh, at least minimally uh, uh, a well-informed electorate that just knows the the basics in terms of yeah. the issues that the country is facing. I don't think you'll ever get there. So yeah. I think uh, I think that's why democracy is a problem, and that's why republics are a better idea, um, whereby at least there's some sort of constituency, um, which uh, which is then hopefully represented by someone who has a finger on all of these issues. Um, mm. And a, and, a, and a good understanding. Now, there's no guarantee of that, um, but your hope would be. That, that, remember, the, the other thing is, is even middle class people who have their lives so called sort of sorted out. You know, they they they've got somewhere to live. They they know they know they're going to have food this month, uh, and they're going to have all of their basics sort of dealt with. Um, a lot of these people have no interest in politics whatsoever. They just don't engage. Mm-hmm. Um, and I it think it sounds like uh, uh, Roman's daughter is a big fan of democracy, and she's not a fan of what you're saying. Uh, yeah, well, you know, the young ones don't know any better. What can I say? <laughs> That's why the Democrats want to lower the voting age in America. I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous to me that they've chosen. Well, at the same time, I know why they're doing it. But at the same time, if you really need children to really be the base or your voice for your party, then maybe your views are a bit childish. Well, the other thing is there's a, there's a good argument in raising the – so all of these ages are arbitrary, okay? How we get – how we yes, got to 18 is completely arbitrary because what we did was we went, oh, they finished school and now they're going to go to the military. So if they're going to go fight for the country, they should probably be able to drive and they should probably be able to do these things. How America gets to a drinking age of 21 and the UK gets to 18 or we get to 18 is 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 they, it's completely arbitrary. There's the, when these things were made, there was there wasn't any good data for it. It was sucked out of thumb for when you are essentially come of age in the society. Mm. Um, the reality is if you want to be evidence-based about things, nobody should be able to make any major decision until they're 28. Because the, yeah. the, the data shows that your frontal lobe is not fully formed and uh, hasn't stopped basically developing. The neuroplasticity of your frontal lobe is, uh, is, is heavily changed and influenced by things that you can do and just by growth uh, up to that age. And so if you want to make that argument about age, we should be increasing the age of everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, driver's licenses, uh, alcohol, um, you know, all the things that government loves to regulate mm. and decide on. Yeah. And that's the interesting thing. I think it was an absolute masterstroke by the, the Democrats in America, basically taking these children with plot armor, well, not plot armor, with, uh, with victim armor and just saying, well, now they, they're going to be the voice of our party and you can't attack them because they survived the school shooting, you monster. Yep. So they, it was a, like I said, a complete masterstroke. I can understand exactly why they're doing it. And I don't think enough people are pointing out the fact that it's kind of a cheap shot. It's, uh, it's playing dirty almost, using, no, hiding behind children almost. Uh, yeah, well, it is, it is, well, it is hiding behind children. And it's also, the, the thing is, is there's no such thing as an unimpeachable character. 
So the minute someone tells you that uh, this person we've put in front of you is unimpeachable in any way whatsoever, you need to deeply question that. And you, you got the, you, the, the person who's been most prominent is this uh, David Hogg guy in the U.S., uh, with regards to that Parkland shooting and, and all the gun control. And he was part of arranging that March for our lives with the uh, Cameron Kasky. Um, and it, the minute you say anything negative about this guy, and I think he's an idiot, I'll say that. Uh, and I base that on his views in the world. It's very clear that he's ignorant. Uh, it's very clear that not only is he ignorant, but when someone tries to correct his ignorance, he refuses to correct his ignorance. That's what makes him an idiot. Um, and, uh, and yes, uh, you know, he, he, he's been held up as a prop, uh, because it's funny how he thinks he's controlling the narrative. He's not. Um, mm. and, uh, yeah, it is a problem and it's a bigger problem when you, the argument is you cannot attack the argument here because this is a child who survived the school shooting. Um, and, you know, even in that, you see a lot of um, discrepancy because, yeah. you know, surviving a school shooting at a school with 3,000 people that is over a very it's – a, it's a massive school, that, that particular school. Um, mm. There were people who were in classrooms or in other buildings, uh, nowhere near the shooter. So did they survive a school shooting? Yes, they did. Did they survive a school shooting in the same way someone in a classroom where the shooter walked into survived? No. Uh, as it happens, mm. one of the people, one of the students who was actually shot, uh, you know, mm. has completely opposing or relatively opposing views to uh, those uh, teenagers being held up as the gun rights advocates. You know, one of them. Yeah, and what is, I also what I also find interesting is, for example, if you look at this, uh, I think his name is Karl Kashuf of Kashikov or whatever. Kashuf, yeah. He's a yeah, he's a right leaning teenager from that exact same school. And he's not being invited to CNN. He's not being invited to any of the, the meetings or uh, uh, events where they're talking about gun control. They're basically ostracizing him. And he's making a, a strong point about the fact that the, the American media have absolutely no desire to talk to him because his views don't align with their agenda. And to get back to South Africa as well. It's, uh, that's what happens in South African politics. You also have uh, the, the poor are used as a prop. A lot of the times the, the ANC and EFF kind of hide behind the tragic stories that you hear coming from the townships or coming from basically high crime areas in South Africa. And they don't really address the issues. They just play with people's emotions by basically putting these people that have been victims of crime or victims of uh, poverty on, on a pedestal and then using them as their own little props and peons in their game. And that's what I find interesting about politics is that there doesn't seem to be any principles or rules. You can play dirty. You can go, you can hit below the belt. And that's why I always find it uh, quite ironic that the Democrats use that idea of when the Republicans go high, we go, oh, when the Republicans go low, we go high. But at the same time, it's absolutely not true if you look at their, at their conduct. No, it was a good, it was a good, it was a good, uh, Michelle Obama as well. The ANC and the EFF like to take the moral high ground and present themselves as these, uh, paragons of morality, but then you look at their rhetoric and you realize, shit, man, these are, they have fascists and racists within their midst and within their ranks as well, but they're not addressing it. Let's, uh, let's be fair. The ANC stole money that was supposed to educate two generations. Um, mm. to think that any of these people, including the DA, including any politician is a moral agent for change is utter, utter bullshit. 
Um, and uh, it's just a pity that you know a lot of them, a lot of people in power who are, who used to be the gatekeepers of information, they've been co-opted by the narrative, right? They've been co-opted by the 400 yeah. years of oppression, by the, the need for transformation, by the need for quotas, by the need for all this insane, insane bullshit uh, that is extremely anti-black. At the end of the day, it's extremely mm. anti-black. Whoever is not in the ANC. That's yeah, I think the, the stat is there's something around uh, 675 billion rand has been lost to government corruption since 1994. Yeah. That could have changed this country if you put that money to good use. Yeah. And the ANC is not being challenged enough on the fact that it's been 24 years and they failed to deliver, been in charge. You can't just keep scapegoating one little group of people for your own failings. And when, uh, I think, I can't remember who said it, but there was one, uh, Afrikaans philosopher that said, uh, even if all the white people from South Africa disappeared tomorrow, basically any scapegoat, even if they all disappeared the next day, the the scapegoat mentality won't disappear. And I'm seeing this happen, uh, for example, in the colored and Indian communities in South Africa as well. They're getting quite vocal on the fact that they realize that it's not going to end with whitey. As soon as the white uh, scapegoat is exhausted, then they're going to come for you as well. Uh, this this racial hierarchy and this almost oppression Olympics are not going to end with just black versus white. It's going to keep on evolving in terms of light lighter black skin versus lighter brown skin. It's going to, if you keep on this racial road, it's always just going to devolve into basically basically a, a racial pre, uh, oppression Olympics. And people love a scapegoat. Uh, politicians love being able to blame someone else and not doing introspection. And you can see it in America as well with the whole Russia, Russian collusion uh, narrative is that the Democrats are refusing to do introspection. They are refusing to look at, look inwards and realize we fucked up. We lost to Donald fucking Trump because we, we fielded the worst uh, uh, candidate in history. And if you look at the history of uh, the right and left, uh, in the late 90s, the, the left basically won the culture war. The right was absolutely browbeaten in the culture war in the late uh, 1900s. And then the right int- did some introspection. They realized, oh, shit, if we don't look, take a hard look in the mirror and start adapting, we're going to fade into irrelevance. And that's where the rise of the, the right in the mid-2000s and now in the, in the 2010s also happened, was they came back after introspection. And that's where the, the same crossroad that the, the left is standing at right now is they need to realize we're going to have to do introspection and in, adapt or die. And if you look at the, the, the dynamics and the, not only in, in uh, America, but also in Europe, every election, for example, Orban that won in Hungary with a landslide or Brexit or the Italy election or uh, Trump. You, every time there's just a bunch of excuses. Oh, it was Russia. Oh no, it was Cambridge Analytica. Oh no, it was a, a unfair election. White or, supremacy. Uh, fake news. Yeah, and there's absolutely no. Uh, they're not taking responsibility. There's no introspection. The left isn't mm. looking at itself in the mirror and realizing maybe it's me. Because it's much easier just to blame some conspiracy or some well, well, that, well, uh, outside. Well, well, that's true. But but one of the main differences between the right and left is that the left is a collectivist think mindset, and the right is an individual mm-hmm. mindset. And uh, the the so it's built in to the left to never take responsibility, because that's 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 the ideology on the left is that you don't take responsibility for your own actions. There's always something, or generally some other group 
to blame. Um, whereas on the right, it's an individual uh, view. And so individuals are ultimately responsible for themselves. And therefore, if something doesn't go right, it's always you who's accountable. But, uh, Caracol, mm. we're going to have to, uh, we're going to have to call it. Uh, any, uh, final, final words? Well, my final words would be in South Africa, I think it's incredibly important that we support the idea of freedom of speech. South Africans need to realize that everyone needs a seat at the table. We can't just drive everyone that you disagree with into the underground and just sweep it under the rug and then uh, pretend that it's not there. For example, I want my opposition in the spotlight. I want to hear what their stances are. I don't want to censor them because then they're going to go behind the corner and, and plot there. I want to want them, just like you saw of Julius Malema, I want him to put his rhetoric and his thoughts out there so I can know where his stance is. And the thing about, the interesting thing about the South African context uh, specifically is the fact that we don't really have a right versus left dichotomy in our politics. It's more uh, center left versus left versus radical left. And I think South Africa could benefit quite a lot from uh, a conservative movement, for example, a fiscally conservative movement rather than social. The idea that, no, maybe we should try uh, cutting back on excessive government spending or on uh, overbloated over uh, government bureaucracy and just trying to get our debt under control. So my last final thought would just be more South Africans need to be open to the idea of you need to listen to other people. Uh, I always say if you want to beat your opponent in a debate, you need to read his favorite books because then you can real, then you know exactly what what he's going to say and what his uh, stances are going to be. For example, when the fees must fall movement started, I immediately went and bought the communist manifesto and read it because I because they were quoting it verbatim. So, yeah, my that's the the thought that I want to leave it on is the fact that we need to listen to other people. You need to listen intensively because uh debate and conversation across uh, partisan lines is what keeps a country together. That's what keeps us moving forward. If you're just going to get stuck in a rut on the left or the right, you're going to stagnate. You're not going to get any new ideas or even have your ideas challenged. Yeah. And that's the thing, because if you don't have, I think I tweeted it out just uh, uh, yesterday, the fact that I want people's most, even their most cherished beliefs challenged on a, on a daily basis almost, because when you, pressure creates diamonds. If you uh, hug a piece of coal, you just get a dirty shirt. So that's the thing. It's uh, Debate is like folding metal. That's how you refine your views. And that's what I want to encourage in South Africa. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think the height of civility is being able to say the most outlandish stuff without getting shot in the face. Uh, so we fully agree. That's the point of this podcast. Uh, that's the point of your YouTube channel. Uh, wh where can we find your YouTube channel, Caracol? Okay, right. So to find my YouTube channel, you only have to search on YouTube uh, Conscious Caracol. And you can find me on Twitter as well at if you, you can search Conscious Caracol or you can search my username Con Caracols. Oh, and the, in, the internet gave up on me. Just say that, say the username again. So my username on Twitter, you can just search uh, Conscious Caracol or you can, or you can search my username C-O-N-C-A-R-A-C-A-L. Awesome. All right. Thanks. Uh, thanks so much. It's been a good chat. Thanks for joining us. Really appreciate it. Mm, thanks for inviting me. Perfect. Uh, and uh, we'll be in touch and uh, suggest our listeners uh, go over to your YouTube and, and take a look at what you're doing. Oh, thank you very much.
let's build the South African intellectual dark web. I think it's a matter of um, survival at this, you know, at this stage. It's not just a question of ideas. It's a question of fighting the absolute bullshit perpetuated by many people within this country, including those in power. So let's do it. And she agrees. Yeah. Okay, and uh, that's all we'll hear from Ramon and his daughter for today. Uh, thanks so much, Caracol. Uh, we'll uh, be in touch. If you enjoyed the show, you can always uh, consider a donation on Patreon. You can find Roman at Roman Kabernak, uh, myself at Jonathan underscore Witt. Um, uh, the podcast at Renegade underscore Report. We have interesting discussions on Facebook on the Facebook uh, Renegade Report group. Uh, not not just the page, but please do go along, like the page. Those of you listening on iTunes, if you wouldn't mind leaving a rating uh, for the show and also a comment, it does help us uh, in terms of uh, expanding uh, the show. What that does is iTunes then uh, recommends us to other listeners, and we always appreciate that. Thank you for listening. Catch you next time. Cheers. This is CliffCentral.com.